0: Today's passage is Luke 17, 1 through 10. He said to his disciples, offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Which one of you having a servant tending sheep or plowing will say to him, when he comes in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? Instead, will he not tell him, prepare something for me to eat? Get ready and serve me while I eat and drink. Later, you can eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did what was commanded? In the same way, when you have done all that you were commanded, you should say, we are worthless servants. We've only done our duty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, bro.
1: Thanks, Andy. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Frank. I'm one of the uh, elders here, and uh, I'm going to be taking us through uh, the passage that Andy just read for us. Um, I want to start by asking, have you ever felt like you're stalling in your growth as a Christian? Maybe you could say that you identify with that feeling right now. Perhaps you feel like you're missing something, that your experience doesn't line up with what the Bible says a Christian should experience. Maybe you want to go deeper into all that God has for you, but you don't know how to get there. If you can identify with these feelings, then the good news of this passage is we're in good company. In today's passage, Jesus teaches his disciples about the Christian life. And halfway through, they blurt out, increase our faith. The disciples knew what it felt like to hear the words of Jesus with a sense of inadequacy. Maybe they thought that Jesus should have chosen different disciples and that they were unworthy of the calling. Whatever they were feeling, they cried out to Jesus to do something about it, to change them, to lift them to a higher level plane of existence to give them more faith to live out Jesus' teaching. Our passage for today contains four areas of Christian discipleship that the disciples found hard to put into practice. Before we see how Jesus helps them in their understanding and application of his words, let's pray that God would help us as well. So Lord, yeah, I just want to ask for your help. As we unpack this passage, um, and these things that are so hard to live out, Lord, we, we really need your Holy Spirit. We need your power if we're going to live out these words. So yeah, we really ask for your help, your guidance, your Holy Spirit, as we seek to understand these words and then put them into practice. In your name. Amen. So Jesus teaching teaching. 17, 1 to 10, can be split into four sections. The first section, a warning against causing any believer to stumble. Secondly, a command to both rebuke and forgive. Thirdly, a little faith goes a long way. And fourthly, the attitude we should adopt before God. Let's dive into section 1 then. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus explains that offenses will certainly come. So according to Jesus, a believer falling into sin is as likely to happen as the sun rising and setting each day. Jesus knows our weaknesses. He knows our hearts. It is no surprise to him then when we fall into temptation. This view is shared by the apostle John who wrote in 1 John one8 to 8-10. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there's no uncertainty in Jesus and John's mind. Everyone will be tempted at some point to sin and everybody at some point will give in to that temptation to sin. This is bound to happen, says Jesus. It is a matter of when... And not if. Now, the good news is that there seems to be an implicit promise here for those that do find themselves in sin. And what I mean by that is that Jesus doesn't mention any condemnation for the one that sins, but only for the one that caused that person to sin. Going back to the letter of 1 John. Right after verses 8 to 10, the very next words in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, say this. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only ours, but also for those of the whole world. So John makes explicit what is implicit in Jesus' teaching in today's passage. Namely, that if and when we are tempted and sin, all is not lost. There is good news for us. And that good news is that Jesus, in his risen state, is in the presence of God the Father, and he is advocating for us. Like a defense attorney, he is pleading our case before God, the almighty judge. So this is a role that Jesus has taken up upon his ascension to heaven. And Jesus goes so much further than any earthly advocate could. Because the case that he makes before the Father is grounded in his own work to redeem and restore us. Jesus, the one who was tempted in every way but was without sin, willingly willingly allowed the just judgment for the sins of the world to fall on him so that he could give sinful people his sinless record before God. Romans 8.1 sums up the result of Jesus' work for us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This means that every time we sin, we don't have to jump to our own defense like we are so good at doing, because Jesus is defending us in heaven. He never tires of advocating for us, of applying his saving work to us, and proving over and over that we are legally innocent before the throne of Almighty God. According to Jesus, he is advocating for every believer who sins, with one exception, the one through whom they come. Now, how are we going to make sense of this? Well, firstly, and obviously, this is clearly a big deal in God's eyes. So much so that it would be better for that person to die a gruesome death, such as being tied to a heavy stone and thrown into the sea. Why is Jesus, the Prince of Peace, using such appalling language here? Well, in order to answer this, we must understand what exactly is happening here between the guilty person and other Christians. Some scholars would argue that this is pointing to false teachers, those that would come in the years and decades following Jesus' ministry to purposely lead people away from the truth. Others would say that the Greek words here can be translated to bait or to lure, which also speaks of intentionally enticing Christians into sin. We must also consider that Jesus uses the phrase, one of these little ones, to describe those led into sin. Most commentators agree that this isn't talking exclusively about children, although children could be included in this description. Some suggest this is young Christians, those who are finding in their feet, and who are still in a vulnerable position. Others see little ones as referring to the poor and the disabled. Whoever it is, it seems that Jesus is describing a group of Christians who are particularly susceptible to being exploited and led astray. As we've seen over and over in Luke's gospel, Jesus is drawn to the weakest and most vulnerable people. Jesus' heart goes out to sinners and sufferers because he is moved with compassion for them. No wonder then that Jesus describes such a strict punishment on anybody, be they a professing believer or not, who willingly leads vulnerable Christians into sin. The gravity of what Jesus says in verse 2 leads us to a linking exhortation in verse 3a. It says, Be on your guard. Jesus knows that most of his disciples were going to go on to hold prominent roles in the early church. And so he reminds them to keep a close watch on your hearts. Proverbs 4:23 says, "Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life." Jesus knows There are a million ways to come unstuck in the world. As he was tempted in every way, albeit without sin. He is uniquely qualified, therefore, to urge his disciples to be on guard as they fight against sin, the world, and the devil. I'm going to grab the, um, where's the the hand held? At first I was like, what is that noise? It's like someone knocking on the wall. Then I realized it was me. Sorry about that. Where were we? Okay, yeah, Jesus, Jesus knows that there's a million reasons you can come unstuck in the world. He was tempted in every way. Yet yeah, he was without sin. So he is uniquely qualified to urge his disciples to be on guard as they fight the battle against sin, the world, and the devil. Just like in sports, when a favored team take an opposition lightly only to lose, Jesus is urging us not to take life in this world lightly, keeping a a constant posture of vigilance. Jesus goes on to say that this alert, vigilant approach to sin extends outward as well as inward. Verse 3b says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. So according to Jesus, when we see sin in a fellow brother or sister in Christ, we shouldn't turn a blind eye. We should rebuke the person, bringing their sin to light, to allow them the opportunity to repent. Now, I don't know about you, but I think this is a really difficult command to obey for a number of reasons. Firstly, is it my place to say something? Do I know this person well enough? to speak into their life secondly what if this causes relational tension or ruins our friendship is it worth it thirdly I'm afraid to come across as judgmental after all it's not like I'm anywhere close to the perfect Christian doesn't Jesus say to take the plank out of your own eye before trying to remove the speck in a brother or or sister's eye and fourthly I want to be gracious and loving. Rebuking a person just feels too harsh for me. Now, these are all valid concerns. But we must be careful that we don't shy away from challenging a brother or sister for any self-centered reasons. Not wanting to hurt someone's feelings, break a friendship, or being humble can appear like good motives on the surface, but could come out of a posture Of fear. As followers of the risen Lord Jesus, our lives shouldn't be marked by fear but love. For example, 2 Timothy 1 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. As we've seen through the book of Luke so far, Jesus is constantly saying hard things to people for their ultimate good, proving that piercing truth and undying love can coexist. One reason I think that we find delivering truth so hard is that according to our culture, truth and love rarely go hand in hand. On the most part, our culture says that calling out sin is judgmental, harsh, or even inappropriate. The unspoken code of our culture says, if you want to be loving, Keep your views to yourself. Don't overstep the mark. Don't tread on other people's toes. Christian counselor, Susan Heck, puts a finger on why we find speaking the truth in love so hard. She says, we must admit that speaking the truth in love in a post-truth world is at times difficult, even as a child of God. We are often thought as archaic, judgmental, profiling, and not relevant to society. Too often, we find ourselves speaking lies instead of truth, appealing to people's emotions rather than their intellect, and being friends of the world rather than friends of Christ. We can argue that the benefits of challenging sin in others is simply not worth the possible risks involved. But if we collectively shrink back from lovingly calling out sin in one another, then we will be greatly hindered as a church in our ministry, both to God, to one another, to Seattle, and to the wider world. I learned about a tool for appraising one's own performance at college called the Jahari Window, which was developed by American psychologists Joseph Luft and Harry Ingram. Hence the name Jahari as a merging of their two first names. It It should come up on the screens. As you can see, We have four panes to the window. Let's start in the top left-hand corner, and then we'll go anti-clockwise from there. So top left is what is known to self and others. Then we move round to the one where it's things that are known to you and not known to others. Then we move to the section where it's unknown to you and unknown to others, which, side note, as a Christian, I would argue that the unknown box is what is what only God knows about us and what he can only reveal about us. But here's, here's where I'm going with this. The last pain is what is known to others but unknown to self, which they call the blind spot. In order for us to grow as Christians, not only do we need to carefully scrutinize ourselves and pray that the Holy Spirit speaks to us about areas that only God knows, We also need one another to lovingly point out our blind spots if we're going to mature as Christians. I would go so far to say that some of the most challenging moments in my Christian journey have been when friends have lovingly invited me on a walk, put their arm around me, and pointed out to me an area in which I'm falling short of glorifying God. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that I wouldn't be the person I am today without these loving challenges from close friends, and chiefly from my wife, Debs, who has a unique window into my blind spots and sin, and who doesn't take any nonsense. She will always tell me where I've messed up because she loves me, and she loves me enough to not let my sins fly under the radar. Jesus teaches us that we are to share in each other's commitment to pursue righteousness. One of the reasons why the Roman army was so effective is that they mastered the art of fighting hand-to-hand combat in such a way that everyone had someone else watching their back. And this is how we should view our collective approach to righteousness as a church. Growing to maturity is impossible if we try and do it as isolated individuals. We have too many blind spots. That's why we should all prioritize meaningfully belonging to a local church and then small groups within that church where we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are watching out for us so that they can challenge us, not not try and catch us out in sin, but ensure that we grow and mature into the men and women God desires us to be. That's one way in which we will grow. This watchfulness is an activity that all of us should be participating in if we are to grow together as a church family. When we challenge each other, here are five rules of engagement the Bible gives us. I could have given many more than this, but let's keep it to five. Number one, our challenge should always promote peace and mutual upbuilding, Romans 14, 19. Two, we are not judging the other person. That is God's job, Romans fourteen three. Thirdly, Examine your own heart and be sure to speak humbly as one who also struggles with sin. Matthew 7, 3-5. Number four, the goal should be restoration. 2 Corinthians thirteen eleven. And number five, it should be done with gentleness. Galatians 6, 1. Jesus goes on to give another command in verse 3. Not only are we to rebuke a brother or sister, but we are then to forgive them if they repent. Jesus then pushes this radical teaching further and states in verse 4 that if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, if we find the command to rebuke one another difficult, then Jesus' next command can come across as near impossible. Jesus is essentially saying, never stop forgiving, each other. Here, Jesus says seven times in a day, in Matthew 18, 22, Jesus says 70 times seven, which is a play on the Jewish idea of seven being a complete number. So, 70 times seven would be understood by the disciples as an infinite number. The message is clear, Christ's followers are to have an inexhaustible capacity for forgiveness. The disciples' response to this gives us an idea of how hard this command is. In verse 5, the apostles call out in unison, Increase our faith. Remember, these are the same men that have already witnessed Jesus doing numerous miracles, driving out demons, feeding the 5,000, and raising a dead girl to life. What is going to stoke faith more than seeing these things firsthand? And yet, when Jesus commands them to never stop forgiving each other, They cry out for the faith to obey it. Why is forgiveness so hard? Well, firstly, it's hard because we are creatures of justice. You'll know this if you have kids, but if you don't have kids, just volunteer to take a three-year-old to a playground, and you will discover a child's burning passion for justice. If a sibling takes away a toy, or another child pushes them off a roundabout, or if they're told not to pick up a rotten banana covered in wood chips and put it in their mouth, they'll kick off like the 4th of July. Kids demand justice. And in some ways, this justice mirrors our Heavenly Father and His perfect justice. But the presence of sin, both in the world and in the individual heart, means that there's a vindictive nature to the justice that we crave. Without the gospel and the help of the Spirit, We never grow out of this warped desire to inflict wrath on the one who's wronged us. Forgiveness is so hard because it requires us to withhold the justice that our flesh cries for. Secondly, our pride is often wounded. And to forgive requires humility. If one result of sin is our warped understanding of justice, then another powerful hindrance to true forgiveness is our own pride. Pride by its very nature wants to come out on top. Pride goes hand in hand with vanity because the prideful person hates to look bad, to look weak, or to appear to have been beaten. True forgiveness is next to impossible then for a proud person because forgiveness humbly puts the other person's knees first and gives up the right to win. Thirdly, we like to keep records of wrong so that we have ammunition in future conflict. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes in verses 4 and 5, Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love, according to Paul, keeps no record of wrongs in marriages, family, Friendships, as we grow older together, it's tempting to keep a score of sins committed. And this quickly leads relationships into serious trouble. Because one, when one gets genuinely wronged by another, and the offended person calls out the sin, the, the offending person can dismiss the challenge saying, well, you did so-and-so and so-and-so to me just the other day. This is another ugly characteristic of sinful humanity. We keep a record of wrong so that when we come under fire, we have the ammunition with which to fight back. If not dealt with, this attitude will destroy our relationships. Forgiveness requires that we let go of the offense committed against us like casting a stick into a fast-moving river, never to see it again. Number four, forgiveness comes at a cost to us. Forgiveness has to be given freely to a person who doesn't deserve it. Forgiveness with strings attached is no longer forgiveness. In our sinfulness, we are transactional. We're always looking for how we can benefit from an interaction, asking, what's in it for me? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Forgiveness, however, is a one-way transaction with no direct rewards. It involves a willingness to be the one that loses for the sake of granting the other person forgiveness. And lastly, forgiveness can feel risky. A A fair question that we ask ourselves is, if I forgive, what if they just do it again? This is maybe the hardest of all the barriers to forgiveness as we do not want to make it easy for the other person to take our forgiving posture as an excuse to keep sinning against us over and over again in the interest of time i won't go into huge detail here as it would be another standalone sermon in and of itself but put briefly jesus commands us here in luke 17 to always forgive someone who has wronged us if they repent luke 17 is dealing with the posture of our hearts towards one another Matthew 18, on the other hand, is much more concerned with the nuts and bolts of forgiveness and specifically how the church should treat a brother or sister who is repeatedly unrepentant. If a person person outwardly claims to be repentant, but spirit-led church members conclude that this person is in fact unrepentant, Jesus outlines the appropriate steps to take. Therefore, Luke 17 encourages us to adopt a posture of inexhaustible forgiveness, with Matthew 18 giving us godly guidance for when we suspect someone isn't truly repentant. To summarize, forgiveness is extremely difficult, if not impossible for us, without being saved, regenerated, and filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the gospel is the key to becoming a person who can forgive endlessly. Let's revisit each of those five reasons why we find it hard to forgive and apply the gospel to each one. So number one, we crave justice. But the gospel reveals to us that God withheld his just judgment when he forgave us. As 1 Peter 3.18 brilliantly summarizes, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. This helps us become people who can offer endless forgiveness because if we can celebrate the truth that we have escaped the just judgment for our sin through the work of Christ, then how can we argue that judgment should fall on the person who has wronged us? That would be a grave contradiction. We should offer the same grace that has captured our hearts to those who have sinned against us and who come back to us for forgiveness. Number two, forgiveness is hard for the proud. The gospel is the ultimate medicine to pride. The fact that the cross was the only answer to the sins of the world banishes pride. Without the grace of God, we have nothing to boast about. And even our best works are filthy rags, according to Isaiah 64.6. The gospel makes us people of deep humility, which is the foundation on which become forgiving people. Number three, forgiveness keeps no record of wrong. In the gospel, God is said to have thrown our sins to the bottom of the ocean, Micah 7, 19. This picture makes a powerful point. When God forgives us through the work of Christ, he will never dredge our sins up again. We don't have to worry that we will sin One time too many, and God will say, That's it. I'm going to pull up all your old sin and shame, and I'm going to hold it over you. No. In the gospel, God promises that our sins are as far from us as the east is from the west. So we are to imitate God in putting a great distance between ourselves and the sins of our brothers and sisters. Number four forgiveness is costly. This is an easy one. Our forgiveness cost Jesus everything. He paid the ultimate price for you and me because he looks at us. He looks at you and he says you are so worth it. Jesus was willing to die a brutal death and face the wrath of Almighty God for the sins of the world so that we could enjoy perfect and eternal forgiveness. When we think of what it costs him to forgive us let's ponder that let's ponder what Jesus was willing to pay for you and me so that we're willing to to count that cost when we forgive ourselves and lastly the risk of forgiveness did God hold back not wanting to send his son in case people rejected him not at all in fact God sent Jesus to earth even though the majority of people rejected him. How did Jesus respond to this rejection? Did he cast down fire from heaven like his disciples once suggested? No. He continued in a posture of mercy, grace, and forgiveness towards his enemies right to the end. When we think of the risks of forgiveness, we should follow Jesus' example. Jesus was able to offer grace to those who wronged him because he trusted that the Father would one day call every person to give an account. See, some Christians distance themselves from the Bible's teaching about the divine judgment of Almighty God. But ironically, without the doctrine of divine justice, we lose a key resource in our ability to offer Endless forgiveness. Acts 17.31 says, God has fixed a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this by raising him from the dead. Because God has promised that he will hold the world to account and put all things right through Christ. We don't have to be the ones to dole out justice. Praise God, for we do not have what it takes to judge wisely, fairly, and without the red mist of anger. Praise God that we can offer forgiveness, even if the offender either sins against us again, or goes off and does it to someone else. God sees everything, and he will ensure that justice be done. Back to the passage, how does Jesus respond to the disciples' request for more faith? According to Jesus, even if someone has the faith of a mustard seed, which was regarded in the ancient world as the smallest of all the seeds, then that person can say to a mulberry tree, which which were known for their extremely strong root systems and could, could live for around 600 years apparently, to jump up and plant themselves in the sea. This is like many of Jesus' memorable images that he conjures up. I don't think it's supposed to be taken literally. I I think it's supposed to gain his hearers' attention and then provoke them to think deeper. Jesus' point is that even a minuscule amount of faith can produce incredible results. And the way to increase faith is to put what little faith you have into action And then let God go to work. Maybe you're sitting there this morning and like the disciples, you'd love to have faith in greater measure. Perhaps you want to be bolder in your evangelism. But you lack the confidence to speak to your friends about your love for Jesus and his impact on every area of your life. Perhaps you want to grow in praying for people for healing. But you hold back. Unsure what to do if your prayers are unanswered. Perhaps you want to be more sacrificially generous with your time or your money, but you don't want to be left over-leveraged. If you identify with this feeling, our passage teaches us that in the kingdom of God, faith isn't magically given to us overnight. Faith can be a bit like an obscure muscle in our bodies. Like, let's say, the transverse abdominus, deep in your core. If you don't know you have a transverse abdominus, then you can't knowingly use it. Once we are made aware that we have a transverse abdominus, then we are in a position to start consciously putting it to work in order to strengthen it. According to Jesus, we don't need extra faith. We need to exercise the faith we already have. God loves to use the little we have to accomplish great things. If we step out and pray, act, and give, and share in faith, just watch what God does. If you want a great example, look no further than the disciples. In the years that followed Jesus' ascension, they healed the multitudes, they preached with unparalleled boldness, and they planted churches all over the surrounding regions. They exploded across the known world. The disciples encourage us that God is faithful in his promise here in verse 6. That when we exercise our faith, no matter how small it is at first, God can use it in his sovereign plan to achieve great things for his kingdom. We come now to the final lesson that Jesus has for his disciples and for us in verses 7 and 8. Sorry, 7 to 10 this short parable at first glance can appear to contradict some of Jesus' previous teaching in Luke. Take, for example, the parable of the prodigal son that we looked at a few weeks ago. In that parable, when the son comes home, the father refuses to make him like one of his hired servants, instead throwing a huge feast to celebrate his safe return. The glorious truth of Luke 15 is that we are more than servants. We are sons and daughters of God. How then, just two chapters later, can Jesus describe Christians as unworthy servants who just do their duty? How do we reconcile Luke 15 with the dour and joyless language of unworthy servants just doing duty? In the sense of Luke 7, chapter 17. The key to making sense of Luke 17, 7-10, is to see it as our attitude to serving God. If Luke 15 pulls back the curtain on how God sees us and how God celebrates us, then here in Jesus' pithy parable, we see what the heart attitude of the disciple should be in serving God. Do you remember the older son in Luke 15? He said that he'd been slaving his whole life for his father. And he thought that the father owed him as a result. But Luke 15 and Luke 17 teach us that nobody can put God in their debt. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Make no mistake. God's gracious kindness towards us does turn our worlds upside down. But we must remember that everything everything we receive from God is a gift of grace. An old friend and evangelist who I had the privilege of serving with back in my teens and early 20s he used to sometimes stop whatever he was doing and he'd put his arm around me and he'd go and then he'd smile and he'd say that breath was the breath of grace God would be totally justified if he struck me down dead this second but yet I get to take another breath because of his grace This is the attitude that Jesus is getting after. Upon receiving God's lavish grace, the only right response to this grace is to apply it to our lives. Living out of this grace and devoting ourselves to a life of grateful service to the one who gave his son to make a wretch his treasure. We shouldn't think that God is obliged to give us anything in return for all our efforts to build his kingdom. And no true follower of Jesus who understands that the ability to draw another breath is only because of God and his endless grace would ever demand any reward from God for their hard work. What more could he possibly give us that he hasn't already? We should see it as an immense privilege to be used by God to build His church and extend His kingdom. We should do it with glad and sincere hearts, never thinking for a moment that God owes us anything. Why don't you pray with me? God, thank you for your holy word. We want to submit ourselves to your holy word this morning Lord sit underneath it let it govern our lives and pierce our hearts feed our our minds Lord as we we ponder all this Lord we know that there's an awful lot in these ten verses Lord four different ways that we find it really 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 hard to, to live out and can sometimes feel like constantly failing Lord to live out these things Thank you, Lord, that the answer is just to go deeper and deeper into the gospel, deeper into what you've done for us, deeper into how you see us as sons and daughters, that you're advocating for us, that you're defending us. Lord, as we go deeper into these things, that'll give us the power to, to forgive well, to, to gently rebuke one another, to be quick to repent, slow to anger. We ask Lord for yeah for, for a realization, Lord, that we already have the faith that we need to exercise Lord, we already have faith in you, thank you that you've given us that faith, and I pray Lord God that we would we would enjoy a journey of stepping out more and more with that faith and putting it into practice, letting you do the work and standing back and just being in awe of what you can do with our with our tiny tiny little mustard seed of faith. Thank you so much for our church, Lord. and Thank you for everyone here. Thank you for everyone who can't be here today, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that we really look out for one another and that we would put this into practice and we would have each other's backs and that we would be willing to call each other out on our blind spots so that collectively we can grow to maturity as a church. Help us not to shy away from this, God. Help us to do it in in the ways laid out in your in your your scriptures, God. Humbly, gently, full of love, long suffering. Yeah, I pray that you would guide the rest of our time now. Thank you so much that we get to sing your praises. Thank you so much, God, that we get to share communion together as well. So yeah, I just thank you for all this in your name. so yeah we come now to the time of communion um you can go, you can come up to take communion at any point during the rest of the service you don't feel like you have to rush um what is communion um if you're here and you don't know what communion is it's a it's, it's an act that we that we do at the Hallows every single week to remember um, what Jesus has done for us to bring us into the new covenant bring us into um the relationship that we enjoy with him um Consists of two very simple things: bread, uh, and in our case, juice. Um, and what do we do? We we take the bread and we remember that Jesus' body was broken. We we take of the juice and we remember Jesus' blood that was that was spilled. And that that gives us the that's the foundation that we um, w- where we come into the Christian life. We come into the Christian life because of what Jesus did for us. And um, we build the rest of our lives then um, upon that. So maybe just think about that when you come up today. Just think about what Jesus did to um, to make you um, who you are now, to make you um, God's sons and daughters, um, and th- then worship worship would really flow out of that place. Um, again, if you're like new or visiting, um, we have like an open mic through these last like three or four songs. Um, if you want to share something, if you're a regular attender or a member, um, then please come and like, just quickly share with me during one of the songs and then we'd love to hear from you um, for the upbuilding and edification of the body. So.